Welcome to DitchMedics.com, Episode 3, The Lethal Triad. Welcome to another Ditch Medics podcast. We're bringing advanced care to the EMS trenches. Here, we believe in the critical care mindset in a 911 world. Expanding your knowledge in 3, 2, 1. I'm Derek. I'll be your host today. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to talk about the lethal triad, uh, shock management, specifically as it pertains to trauma. Uh, One of my favorite topics. Uh, I think uh, the science of what we're talking about today uh, the lethal triad is just such an amazing topic uh, and certainly has some applicability to what we do as pre-hospital providers. Uh, if, if you're new, if you're listen, listening to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, uh, make sure you head over to the site, uh, ditchmedics.com. Uh, check out some of the stuff we have on there, some articles, some information about us, who we are, what we do and why we do it. Uh, we're glad to have you. Please, please make sure you leave some feedback, uh, whether that be a rating on iTunes or whether that be some feedback through Facebook, Twitter, or actually on the site. We love to hear what you have to say, um, and we appreciate it. So uh, let's get into it, the lethal triad. We're talking about a very specific set of derangements, uh, specifically as pertains to trauma and shock related to trauma, that if not recognized, if not dealt with quickly, your patient's demise uh, will happen very, very rapidly. Uh, the lethal triad is a feedback loop. Uh, each aspect of this triad uh, working with each other to worsen your patient's condition quickly. Uh, the lethal triad consists of uh, hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. Uh, and like I said, these things are onset in the presence of, of shock and hypoperfusion and tissue ischemia specifically as we're talking about today, as relates to trauma, so uh, traumatic cause of shock, most likely bleeding. This topic is very applicable. I think from ages 1 to 40, uh, trauma is still the, the number one cause of death, and bleeding shock or hemorrhagic shock comprises uh, a large percentage of that remaining, uh, certainly as a leading cause of preventable pre-hospital death. Rapid identification of these derangements, these signs and symptoms is critical in managing these patients. We're talking about major trauma. We're talking about penetrating trauma, blunt trauma. Uh, We're talking about a a significant uh, kinetic energy trauma that that can cause life-threatening conditions. So the index of suspicion should be high very early on in management of these patients. Uh, Certainly patients that we inherit that are already showing signs and symptoms of, of shock, you know, we have to be suspicious and work very vigorously in managing this lethal triad early. So let's, uh, let's dig right into it. Let's start out with acidosis. The major aspect of acidosis is, is simply aerobic versus anaerobic metabolism. In the presence of shock uh, with trauma, you know, we've got a hypoperfused state, we've got tissue ischemia, and we have cells that are forced to transition from that normal aerobic metabolism uh, where they've got enough oxygen and they've got enough glucose uh, to maintain that that aerobic metabolism um, in the presence of shock. They don't have those things, so they transition to the anaerobic metabolism, basically um, where they're producing a lot of lactate secondary to that. It's that pathway. It's it's that presence of, of that lactate that causes the the profound onset of, of acidosis in our patients. In normal physiology uh, with our patients, their 
their pH level, their blood pH level ranges 7.35 to 7.45. Uh, anything technically below 7.35 is, is considered acidosis. Another aspect compounding uh, this acidosis in our patients is the uh, historical aggressive use of pre-hospital crystalloid fluid resuscitation, specifically normal saline. Um, the pH of normal saline is, is somewhere around 5.5. Uh, so as we're aggressively and rapidly administering this to our patients, um, we're, we're lowering their serum pH just by uh, infusing that into the bloodstream. Uh, and, and in the past, certainly, uh, where we would you know, start two large-bore IVs and start rapidly infusing those, the, that normal saline, you can see where that could build up pretty quickly in our patients and lower their pH uh, very rapidly. Uh, now, it's individual-specific on what they can tolerate uh, with, with acidosis, uh, but what we're primarily concerned about is how that acidosis affects the other aspects of our, of our patient's physiology how it worsens, for instance, hypothermia, how it worsens coagulopathy, how it contributes to that feedback loop, making our patient more gravely ill uh, in a rapid manner. Uh, for instance, as our, you know, as our pH in our patient continues to drop, uh, gets you know, below, down around the 7.1, 7.0 range, it really negatively affects our patient's ability to uh, clot blood. Uh, they develop coagulopathy very quickly. With that acidic um, of, of blood, it affects the coagulation cascade, uh, and even in the presence of um, administered coagulation factors and you know FFP, they still can't clot blood very effectively uh, with that derangement. So, acidosis uh, system wide increases um, the body's inability. Uh, to, at a cellular level, manage itself. And certainly one last contributing factor uh, worsening that acidosis uh, in, in our trauma patients is any presence of um, hypoventilation or, or airway derangement that contributes to a respiratory acidosis. So we have somebody that's already developed a lactic acidosis, a metabolic-based acidosis, and now is hypoventilating secondary to that trauma. Uh, and we're contributing respiratory acidosis into uh, into their physiology. You can see where that would have negative effects very quickly. Okay, moving on to hypothermia, uh, our second aspect that we're going to talk about today in regards to the lethal triad. You know, put it in context of what we're talking about. We're talking about a trauma patient um, who is hypoperfuse, is in shock, um, is exhibiting you know tissue ischemia. Their, their their cells aren't working well enough to begin with. So at a at a cellular level, at a mito, mitochondrial level, they're not producing as much heat, as much energy as as their normal physiology would. Uh, compounding that is the the strip them and flip them mentality of of what we do with major trauma patients pre-hospitally. You know, we 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 work to expose them uh, to get their clothes cut off very quickly, hopefully in the pre-hospital setting. Um, so we can assess the extent and location of their injuries. But what we've always historically been terrible at doing is once we've we've got them exposed and once we've got them ex assessed and once we have their initial injuries stabilized, we don't cover them back up. We don't work to keep them warm. So somebody that's cooling at a cellular level has already lost a lot of blood, has the inability to, to distribute heat throughout their body effectively, 
Now we've taken all their external clothing off and we've cooled them even more rapidly. And then thirdly, contributing to that is, you know, the historical use of, of once again, aggressive uh, fluid resuscitation uh, and specifically, you know, ambient air, uh, room temperature fluids in a pre-hospital setting. You know, we haven't certainly in a, in a 911 transport environment, most services don't have the ability anyway to uh, warm their fluids. I know that's changing. I know fluid warmers are becoming more prevalent. Ambulances, in fact, having fluid warmers built into them is great, but still an overwhelming percentage of pre-hospital providers aren't providing uh, warm fluids to their trauma patients. So those room air uh, temperature fluids are contributing to that cooling effect. You know, normal body temperature range, let's say 35.5 to around 37.5 or 6 Celsius. For today's conversation, you can find several different benchmarks uh, in the literature, but for today's conversation, we'll talk about hypothermia being um, the cooling of a body temperature below 35 degrees Celsius. Uh, now, one thing to consider, environment really doesn't play a big factor in this. Uh, we're not talking about winter or cold weather environments. I'm talking about year-round. These patients have the inability to manage their internal body temperature. So this hypothermia contributes once again to this, this kind of negative feedback loop uh, where these other conditions, the acidosis and the coagulopathies, continue to worsen. In fact, hypothermic coagulopathy or the inability once again, for the patient to clot blood, uh, starts to present itself somewhere around 34 degrees Celsius or approximately 93 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so as our patient's bodies continue to cool uh, in this hypoperfuse state uh, and in this exposure state, uh, and they, they get around that 34 degrees Celsius mark, the ability to clot their blood is compromised. Throwing that in context of what we just talked about a minute ago, and that was acidosis, and we talked about how that uh, affects our patient's ability uh, to clot their blood, you can see once again how already how we've got this kind of synergistic symphony of destruction going where acidosis contributes to coagulopathy, and coagulopathy tr contributes to hypothermia, and hypothermia contributes to coagulopathy coagulopathy certainly is going to contribute to acidosis, and they're all working with each other. Uh, end result is our patient's death. All right, so moving on, we've got our, our last aspect of the lethal triad, and that's coagulopathy. Uh, and as we've said multiple times, the, the development of, of the compromised aspect of blood clotting anyway. Uh, we've talked about how acidosis contributes to coagulopathy. We've talked about how hypothermia contributes to coagulopathy. Uh, I've really sold and I think hammered home that kind of feedback loop that the lethal triad has going between it. Uh, but there's other aspects that, that can worsen coagulopathy in our patients. Um, there's a simple loss of, of clotting factors. You know, we're, once again, we're talking about trauma. We're talking about bleeding, uh, whether that be internal or external bleeding. But the loss, the manifest loss of those clotting factors is going to worsen our patient's ability to clot blood very quickly. Another contributing factor to coagulopathy is what they call dilutional coagulopathy or, or hemodilution. And that's, you know, you think about, once again, fluid resuscitation, whether that be crystalloids, colloids, or actually blood products um, that don't contain clotting factors, such as packed red blood cells. Very quickly, even though we're resuscitating our patient with fluid, 
and and to a degree we're supporting perfusion we're not replacing or replenishing those uh those clotting factors so we're dilating the blood down and we're actually inducing and, and exacerbating coagulopathy in our patients the last aspect of coagulopathy that we're going to talk about today is DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation um, and this is something that you know we'll potentially see in in very sick trauma patients. Um, these patients are widespread acidosis, uh, widespread tissue ischemia, and basically what DIC is, is the clotting cascade out of control. So basically through some chemistry, some enzymatic reactions in the presence of, of, of this critically ill patient related to their trauma, their clotting cascade gets out of control forms clots very quickly, breaks down those clots very quickly, but consumes its own internal clotting factors uh, really rapidly, leaving that patient without any uh, clotting factors left uh, to, to manage any hemorrhage. So in these DIC patients, we'll simultaneously see kind of widespread systemic, certainly peripheral evidence of microvasculature coagulation, and we'll also see continued signs of widespread bleeding in these patients. So it's kind of the worst of both worlds. The patient's consuming all their clotting factors, and they're bleeding more aggressively, obviously worsening tissue ischemia, uh, and certainly DIC carries a, a high mortality rate with it. So again, let's let's put this all in, in the context of what we're talking about, a, a severely injured patient who's already hypoperfused, who is already you know exhibiting tissue ischemia, now we've got profound coagulopathy, um, even possibly DIC. We have the inability to clot our blood. Patient's already bleeding, so now they're bleeding more aggressively. That bleeding leads to more widespread tissue ischemia, which leads to more acidosis, which leads to more coagulopathy. Both of these lead to more cellular dysfunction and more hypothermia. Uh, so it's 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 a vicious cycle. I mean, this is a this is a this is shock 101. This is why your patients in regards to trauma die uh, from, from shock is because of this lethal triad. And recognizing how this works, recognizing the pathophysiology of it is going to help you better understand and better formulate a strategy for managing uh, this trauma patient, whatever the presentation is. All right, let's talk about management specifically strategies for managing these shock patients and kind of trying to control pre-hospitally uh, this lethal triad. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about bleeding. So obviously, you know, hemorrhage control is going to be on the forefront of our minds with these patients. Uh, we have to stop life-threatening bleeding. You know, certainly external bleeding, we've got to rapidly mitigate it, and we have to identify uh, these patients with uncontrolled internal hemorrhage uh, which is going to guide us, obviously, with that, the bolus of diesel fuel strategy, and that's load them and get them on the way to the trauma center, uh, to the trauma surgeon that can manage that internal bleeding. And certainly the advent uh, of, of hemostatic agents gives us a tool to manage some of that more internal bleeding. And then if you're trained in, in concepts of wound packing and certainly vessel clamping, you've got some other options for controlling bleeds more internally that may not be able to be controlled with traditional external bleeding control measures. So rapid identification uh, and certainly rapid management of all controllable hemorrhage is critical. Rapid identification of, of uncontrolled internal hemorrhage is critical. This is where it starts with these patients. Uh, with shock patients, 
we're not going to be able to control shock. We're not going to be able to prevent that lethal triad uh, from manifesting if we don't control the hemorrhage that we can control in the field. All right, secondly, we've got to think about managing the hypothermia. Uh, You have to assume with these major trauma patients that have lost blood and have continued bleeding and suspected internal injury that they are hypothermic from the moment that you get to them. I don't need to go through the whole detail uh, and time frame uh, from the point of injury to the time that 911 is called to the time that you're dispatched and you arrive, how long it takes. You know it takes a long time. So most of these patients with major trauma, by the time you get to them, are already well within shock and are already hypothermic, and we're terrible at recognizing that. Uh, strip them and flip them. That's, that's it's what we got to do. Uh, we've, we've got to get their clothes off. We've got to get their, their garments off so we can actually assess them. I understand that. And we do that rapidly. That's great. But it's just as quickly as we get those clothes off, just as quickly as we identify and do that rapid trauma assessment, we've got to get them covered back up. We've got to get them covered up with warm blankets if we have them at our disposal, heat packs, and all those regions with, with good peripheral circulation. Uh, turning that, that ambulance heat up in the back so we can get it hot. I mean, if, if you're not sweating by the time you get to the hospital, you probably didn't have it hot enough. If we're placing these patients on, on backboards, we want to try to put a blanket or a sheet between them and the backboard. That cold, hard backboard plastic doesn't suck the heat out of them. Uh, and certainly any of these clothes that we've cut off, you know, we're really good at cutting them off. And then we usually leave our patients as sitting on those wet, bloody, cold clothes. We need to try to get them off them and away from them too. Once again, you may think I'm kind of hammering this point home a little too much, but I can't stress enough how bad hypothermia is for these patients. So work very vigorously in the field to prevent this hypothermia. Another aspect of hypothermia management uh, in the pre-hospital setting is limiting uh, IV fluids like normal saline, LR, whatever you're administering. You may have the the ability to provide warm fluids. It's still not something that we want to push very uh, aggressively, and I don't need to go into too much detail at this point in time. You understand how the paradigm has changed. Uh, no longer are we administering multiple liters of, of pre-hospital crystalloids in these patients. Uh, it, it worsens outcomes for many reasons, and certainly one of those reasons is traditionally we're administering room temperature normal saline, which is causing you know, secondary hypothermia in these patients. All right, so how do we manage acidosis in a pre-hospital setting? And that's that's a little more complex of an issue. We got to think about, once again, how acidosis works with these trauma patients. We're talking about in-organ tissue ischemia. We're talking about that transition to anaerobic metabolism and that production of lactate and that development of lactic acidosis. So if you have the ability to, to measure pre-hospital lactate levels, which hopefully time goes on, more and more uh, services will have this ability. But if you have the ability to do so, that's going to be a great tool for you to detect uh, early shock uh, because that's one of the first things that we possibly are going to see in these patients is elevated blood lactate levels. Another tool that that we all have, hopefully all of us by now have at our disposal, is uh, entitled CO2 monitoring. You know, that's another aspect of, of perfusion that we're able, another, excuse me, tool that we're able to monitor perfusion with. Uh, certainly in these patients that are hypoperfused and are developing metabolic acidosis, we're going to see those lower ranges of, of entitled CO2, which is going to be another kind of diagnostic tool to us that we have to in- increase our suspicion of that uh, tissue ischemia and that, that lactic acidosis. So pretty much management of it is going to be anything that we can do to support 
perfusion, minimal titrated fluid resuscitation. Uh, certainly, if, if you have at your disposal pre-hospital blood products, utilization of those, things like you know, transoxemic acid, TXA, possibly might be in your protocols, certainly on patients that, that this is indicated, that's going to help us control bleeding, once again, causing hopefully downrange positive results in management of that acidosis. Uh, but at the end of the day, in somebody that's profoundly acidotic, uh, it's going to be that rapid transport to the trauma center where they have the ability to, you know, hot lights, cold steel, get inside of our patient, fix the problems, get them resuscitated, uh, and, and then start correcting those, those metabolic derangements. Some benchmarks that we can use perfusion-wise, you know, first of all, we, got, we have to get away from blood pressure. Um, it's, it's, it's been something that's been our, our hallmark, our standard, you know, and we've seen that evolve over the past decade to 15 years, and that's, you know, blood pressure target above 100 and then, you know, we, we identified, okay, let's, let's target, you know, their systolic blood pressure at 100. All right, let's target it at 90, 80. Who knows what the number is? It's an arbitrary number. There's so many different factors that contribute to your patient's blood pressure. It's a really terrible resuscitation endpoint. Uh, what we can do that's a little more effective is resuscitate to an appropriate MAP or mean arterial pressure. Um, there's a lot of kind of debate in the literature at what a good map is for a trauma patient in regards to resuscitation endpoint, uh, but I think most of the literature right now will, will kind of support that map of 65. Your cardiac monitors that have the, the built-in blood pressure, non-invasive blood pressure management, automatically calculate your map. If you're, uh, if you're obtaining your blood pressures by manual method, uh, it's as easy as two times diastolic plus systolic divided by three. Uh, so two times the diastolic blood pressure plus the systolic blood pressure divided by three will give you your mean arterial pressure. That is a calculation, you know, that you're going to want to commit to memory. Uh, that's, that's one that I have used over the past year of my life more frequently than I ever had before because I've realized the value of that mean arterial pressure. It's, it's a great tool in determining patient's relative perfusion status, way better than just a, a systolic number. We also want to maximize oxygenation with these patients. These are patients that we don't want living down in the 92, uh, 93 range. I know it's a great discussion about hypoxemia and hyperoxemia and the lethality of both. And it's a wonderful discussion. I love the, once again, the science of it. But I think data has pretty well supported with these, with these massive trauma patients that are in shock that are, have end-organ tissue ischemia and developing and worsening this lethal triad, we, we want to push oxygen on these patients. Now, once these patients get resuscitated in the trauma rooms and once they get fixed in the operating rooms, that's when in the spectrum of continuation of care, we want the doctors and the intensivists to start looking at that, titrating that FiO2. But in a pre-hospital setting with these patients that are that are in engrave hypoperfusion, we want to push the oxygen on these patients. I, I'm not scared of a pulse ox of 100 with a trauma patient like this. So, so don't titrate your oxygen with these people. You're probably going to have lots of other stuff to do anyway. So just getting them on high flow O2 or getting them intubated and, and potentially mechanically ventilated or assisted uh, ventilated with a BVM and providing them high flow oxygen via that is going to be fine. 
Okay, well, that's the lethal triad. So we've got acidosis, we've got hypothermia, we've got coagulopathy. They all work together very efficiently at killing our patients. Uh, we have to have that high index of suspicion with our major trauma patients, whether they, that be blunt or penetrating trauma in the presence uh, of severe life-threatening blood loss and that suspected in-organ tissue ischemia that they are already well in the process of this lethal triad. Uh, you may not be able to see it from the first moment that you get beside your patient, but you have to suspect that they're developing acidosis, that they're already hypothermic, that they're going to be aggressively, uh, profoundly coagulopathic. Um, so we have to work very vigorously right away to start mitigating and preventing these, these derangements from getting worse. All right, so if I can sum up the management of these patients. It's aggressively manage all forms of bleeding that you can manage. You know, certainly knock out the external extremity bleedings. Do the techniques that you have at your disposal uh, to manage any any thoracic trauma and bleeding. Uh, and then certainly provide rapid transport to the trauma center for those with uncontrolled internal hemorrhage. Keep these patients warm. Keep them warmer than you think they need to be. The, the likelihood is you're not keeping them warm enough. So get them covered up, get them wrapped up, uh, provide some hot packs in the axillary and the groinal regions, um, keep them warm, provide them warm IV fluids if you have it at your disposal, keep them warm. And then manage perfusion as best you can. You know, if you follow your protocols in regards to your system, that's that's kind of where I'll leave it there. Uh, we've got kind of our, our strategies nationwide that we're leaning towards, and that's managing a map somewhere around 65, but certainly follow your system protocols for fluid resuscitation, uh, for administration of any blood products, and manage the perfusion as best you can in the pre-hospital setting. All right, that's it for today. That's that's a pretty good brief, and I try to keep it brief today. I can get long-winded, try to keep this more around the 25-minute, the half-hour mark, but it's a good brief uh, review of the lethal triad. I, I think most paramedics at least understand the concept, uh, but don't understand how important it is to aggressively try to manage each aspect of that lethal triad that we can in the pre-hospital setting. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, please leave some feedback, whether that be through Facebook, Twitter, on the website, uh, www.ditchmedics.com. Certainly, if you're listening to this through iTunes, Give us a review on there and a rating on there. Uh, same thing on SoundCloud. Uh, but we're, we're happy to, to have you guys on board. We hope you like the show, and we'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening to another Ditch Medics podcast. Leave us some feedback or a rating. Contact us by email or on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to visit us at ditchmedics.com.